right. Thank you, Mary Frances, for that. Um, all right, so we're just gonna start off like we normally do in our team meetings with a check-in. I'll go ahead and start just because, um, you know, I feel like I need to explain my voice a little bit here. I'm checking in um, with a little bit of a cough, so you might hear that later on. Um, and But otherwise, really excited about this, this episode and this conversation in particular. Um, with that, I'm gonna go ahead and pass it on to uh, Caitlin, I'm sorry, yeah, Caitlin. And then if you could go ahead and just introduce yourself and tell us how you're checking in. Thanks, Gabby. I am Caitlin Elaine. Hello, everyone. <laughs> I'm checking in, I think, fulfilled personally, fairly creative, been doing a lot of balancing between professional work, uh, personal ideas and work that I have once I'm kind of off the clock, and also just personal growth of working out and uh, kind of feeding my soul. And it's felt really good these past few weeks and hoping to take that into the new year. <laughs> I'll pass it over to Scott. And Caitlin, what do you do at the Winters Group? I am a lead client success account manager here at the Winters Group. Um, so I'm able to take that creativity and feed it into both professional and personal. And I think what I do after hours is kind of how I come in the next day. So that's why still right now during hours, I'm still feeling energized. <laughs> we want to pass it to, oh. to you. Thanks. Um, I'm Scott Ferry. I'm an instructional designer with the Winners Group. So I work with clients to design uh, learning experiences that uh, that fit the organization, help them or help the organizations meet their goals. Uh, and I am checking in uh, cold, physically cold, also <laughs> recovering from a, from um, from a cold. So I like Gabby might cough, um, and you'll see me drinking tea throughout this. Uh, but I am uh, mostly uh, excited to be here with everyone. And I will pass to Rochelle. Hey, everybody. I'm Rochelle Union Montgomery. I'm an instructional designer with the Winters Group as well. And it's kind of surreal that I'm having this conversation with these humans on my screen um, because I've been such a fan of the work from afar um, for years. And yeah, just checking in excited. Also getting over a cold. I have two little ones. I'm a little stuffed up. So I feel like, though, this is the norm for so many people right now. It's a theme. Yeah. It's, it, it absolutely does seem to be uh, like the norm. Um, I'm checking in um, physically, I'm healthy. I don't have a cough, uh, and I am actually in Barbados as we um, as we uh, this broadcast. So it's like it's 80 degrees here. So I'm sorry, um, Scott, that it's cold where <laughs> you are. Um, so I'm I'm checking in um, really well. The only thing that you might hear in my background is. Um, uh, some monkeys scampering about outside. So. Oh, <laughs> where so. are the emojis on this? I'm gonna put some emojis on here. <laughs> we need some emojis, but uh, it's good to be um, here with you all um, today to talk about your chapters for the book and why you wrote those particular um, chapters, um, and why we selected to have the three of you. Uh, on this particular podcast, because I think that there are just such um, synergies here. Mm -hmm. So Scott wrote um, two chapters, actually. One was on allyship, and um, the other one um, is on creating um, psychological um, safety and that people cannot feel safe until they really are safe. And I think that um, is so important to what um, Kate, Caitlin, Elaine, you talk about in your chapter about um, closed mouths don't get justice, and that oftentimes people feel silenced in organizations and that they can't speak up. We hear that a lot in the work that we do, the audit work that we do. Um, we hear so much that um, people are saying, you know, I really can't speak out in, out in this organization. It's not what, it's not safe. So it goes back to the, to the safety. And so you give some really 
um, amazing um, advice um, on how to um, create that space in order to have that conversation. And because this book is about practical solutions, you give some really practical solutions for having a conversation to create that safety. And then Rochelle, your chapter about restorative dialogue actually provides um, examples of several different models and methods for having uh, restorative conversations, um, which also obviously will support creating um, safe, you know, th those safe spaces. Because the theory is, or my theory is anyway, you've got to know how to do it. We can, it, it's wonderful to say that we want to do it, but what are the steps, you know, to get there? The steps that engage both the head, you know, the heart, you know, and the hands, the, the action, right? And so I think your chapters are a great combination, you know, of, of all of that. You know, what is the mindset that um, that we need? How do we need to be? What do we need to, you know, to bring relative to compassion and caring and empathy? Uh, but then also, how do we need to do it, right? What are some, you know, real concrete steps? And so I think uh, your chapters um, actually um, do a great job of, um, of bringing all of that together. And so, um, Scott, if you wanted to, yeah, with this, oh, it sounds like somebody's there's a siren in the background. <laughs> is, that, is that happened in Baltimore? <laughs> um, so Scott, if you wanted to just um kick us off with um you know why you why you wrote the chapter that you did and um yeah, just take it away. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And I apologize for the sirens. Um, it's very common here. Um, <laughs> I live right, right around the corner from a fire station, so um. I, I guess uh, I, I'll be honest. I'd never really thought about or even heard the term psychological safety um, when when I was experiencing uh, the story I'm about to share. Um, but then when I heard it, it really clicked into place. Like that, like that's really what was missing here. So um, I, I've worked for a number a number of a number of organizations. Um, one of them was very outspoken about openness, vulnerability. Um, telling the truth with with kindness, right? right? These are these were core their core values, um, and they're really considered crucial for organizational growth and for the health of the organization. Um, I loved this, uh, especially because personally, in my personal life, these are uh, these had recently become values that I had realized were really important um, to me and 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 to how I was living my life and, and how they had stood in my way. So I was really excited to be uh, to be in an organization that that really lived this. Um, especially because I so deeply believed in, in what the organization was doing. It quickly became apparent, though, that while this openness and vulnerability was encouraged and, and really it, it was expected, it was also weaponized against people, certain people who actually showed up in that way. Um, so things that were like things that were shared in ostensibly safe, uh, protected space would sometimes uh, have those same things that they shared be turned around on them in performance reviews, conversations with leadership and um, uh, promotional decisions, things like that. And uh, needless to say that that really obliterated trust between between employees and between leadership and um, and the employees. Um, but it was also true that if you didn't show up in that way, you it, if you didn't show up openly and vulnerably, you were considered to not be aligned with the with the organization's values. Uh, you weren't a good culture fit. You were seen as a dissenter. Um, you know, so you, you were punished for not showing up in that way too. And again, trust is destroyed in that way. So 
not only were these, did they set these expectations and then turn them against employees? Mm-hmm. Um, it was pretty clear that it was a selective weaponization of this openness mm-hmm. and vulnerability, right? Um, depending on your tenure, depending on where you where you were in the in the hierarchy, and absolutely depending on um, on your on on race, on gender, on culture, uh, it. it manifested differently these punishments like uh, or, or the way it was received i should say um was was different depending on on your, your intersectional identities um so i really started to think about um that like i, I guess I'll, I, I guess i'll say the nexus between what an organization's stated values are versus their lived norms mm-hmm. and so uh from, from from my experience not just at at this organization, but at all organizations, this disconnect often comes from this sort of lethal combination of like hierarchical, hierarchical positioning and ego. So leaders often invite critical feedback only to react really defensively to that feedback. So as I talk about in the chapter, um, there is an alternative to this and that's to receive feedback with curiosity and vulnerability. Um, and, uh, I think it's important to mention um, pragmatically that leaders, and by extension, the organizations that they run, they they can't be perfect and employees really can't expect perfection. Uh, Grace needs to go both up and down. And so this isn't about, it's not about being perfect. Um, And also since employees are humans with really rich pasts and complex histories, um, sometimes no matter what a leadership team does or what a culture, what a culture is, certain employees may not actually ever feel truly safe, even if the conditions are right for that psychological safety to flourish. Um, and that dynamic can be really difficult to wrestle with. It is a lot easier though, if the road has already been paved with those conditions, right? And so it's a matter of creating the conditions for that psychological safety. It's not a matter of perfection. It's not a matter of being absolutely perfect for every employee at all times. And I also uh, finally think it's important to mention that psychological safety is not the same thing as 100% adherence to feedback. Um, Leaders and managers certainly don't need to implement all feedback that they receive. Sometimes it's just not, it's not realistic for any number of unseen reasons. So, um, the key, though, is is making the feedback process safe for employees, and also to use that feedback pro- use the feedback process as a tool for growth. Um, ultimately, leaders who choose to encourage openness, authenticity, and vulnerability from their employees really just need to operate in good faith, and more fundamentally, need their employees to trust them. This trust is built over time through equity-centered actions. And, um, you know, it's not just mission statements. It's not just value statements. Um, it's building that trust. And so um, I wrote the chapter really to explore that, that, that connection between stated values, lived norms, and how you can build trust in order to create a, create a place where everybody can thrive. That chapter is a really, really great chapter. So I'm sure people will definitely want to uh, want to read it. And it is hard in organizations to live um, live those values, even when you have um, have good intent. And that's where the conversation 
and the dialogue um, becomes so um, so important. Yes, and speaking up. Thank you, Scott. I could listen to you all day. Um, next up, we have Caitlin. Caitlin, your chapter. Close yeah. now. Don't get justice. <laughs> yes, I'm so glad you even just brought up the idea of speaking up. Um, I share sentiments with Rochelle of the appreciation to be able to be in this space, particularly with Scott and Rochelle, and how Mary Frances tied our chapters together. Um, because of coming off of what Scott just said, my chapter and the why behind my chapter is around the fact that silence how we are brought up of closed mouths don't get fed if you don't speak up for what you want, say what you want, um, and mean what you say, comes from so many factors that are embedded in our experiences, things that we've gone through, seen, traumas, happiness that we have. Um, and one of those things, like Scott in his chapter even talks about like speaking truth to power as, as a fear, that is one way that we just don't speak up. Um, and then also, I even just like prefacing for Rochelle, she even shares an example of repeated microaggressions leading to her kind of being more subdued and being uh, quieter than usual, which were um, her examples and her words. So I specifically pinpointed in my chapter concepts of microaggressions and concepts of kind of the different areas and scenarios and places and positions that take place when a microaggression is occurring, when scenarios of unjust action is occurring, where you might be a bystander, you might be the perpetrator, and you might be the one receiving all of the emotions and all of the feelings that come with what you just experienced, what just happened, the being on the receiving end of unjust uh, words, unjust actions, behaviors coming against you. Um, and my true, true why behind the chapter is being in that bystander role so often mm. that you really have to battle and fight the urge of wanting to naturally sit in the background, uh, be kind of quiet because it's not your fight, to really want to kind of internally say, I'm here for you, but the words just don't come out because of, I also have a history section in my chapter, because of the history, especially being a Black woman, because of the history of, again, experiences that I've had in the past of what can occur when someone speaks up might just be that reason where I'm like, oh, I'm, I might sit this one out. Um, so my chapter is truly around really gaining the courage, the confidence, the education, the planning that it takes to learn to speak up, because it's not as easy to look at someone and say, well, why didn't you say anything? Or as the bystander, the perpetrator, or the one receiving it, well, well what happened there? Um, it's really about, it does take the same kind of uh, brain power and kind of build up and education and practice. Even in the bystander section, I talk about practicing. If I were to come across a scenario tomorrow at work, today at work, um, today in the grocery store, what would I do in that situation? Um, how can I actually put in an effort to practice? What, what would I say if something um, unjust happened? That is really so powerful and it speaks to what this book is all about, justice, right? We're not going to have justice uh, if we're not able to have those conversations, if we're not able to um, 
if we're not able to know what to do when you're a, a bystander, know how to respond when you're the perpetrator. And your book beautifully goes through that. Um, microaggressions, uh, for those who may not um, know what that means, uh, I invite you to, to read the book and that will be described. But just to give you a little hint, they're those um, little slights that happen mm -hmm. to us, you know, all the time where they, the, um, the intent might not be to harm someone, but the impact is uh, very much, uh, very much harmful. And um, they um, have to do with, with one's, um, they speak to one's identity and they can absolutely um, lead to trauma. And Rochelle, um, you did just a magnificent job in your chapter um, providing for us um, different models, different ways of engaging in restorative dialogue. And so, and why was that so important to you? Yeah, thank you. I I think it really stems from my experiences in the workplace over the last, I don't even know, 15 years um, and, and stumbling through them and, and messing up and not doing it in the way, you know, not doing it perfectly, kind of like Scott is saying, but we're really trying to make progress. And so the frameworks I shared are actually from experiences I've had where either I've seen it modeled or I've tried it on myself, supervising my teams, um, sort of bi-directionally, right? Working with supervisors, managing up, um, lateral communication with peers. So I, I love these frameworks because I'm always asking the question of like, but how, right? I can have the right intentions. My heart can be in the right place. I could be dripping with empathy and love and care and concern and totally mess up an interaction and cause a lot of harm, right? Mm -hmm. And we often miss, uh, we miss the fact that this is a skill set actually that folks spend their lives studying in academia, spend their lives practicing in community, uh, whether they're in organizing or in a faith-based community. This is a skill set to hold space for difficult conversations, difficult emotions, and when it comes to, to race, centering race in that, we especially uh, miss the mark. I mean, all the time. And so, um, yeah, it, it just, it stems from thinking about this term operationalizing justice. I sort of find that these two words together at first didn't make sense in my mind. Mm -hmm. Operationalizing feels a lot like sort of a corporate term, like operationalize, okay, meaning sort of how to, right? Practical. Mm -hmm. Justice, I come from sort of an activist background. So thinking, all right, justice, that seems like it's uh, almost in conflict with, with the term operationalize. And then as I actually was putting pen to paper, it was like, no, this is a good thought exercise for me in stretching my own kind of assumptions and biases about different spaces, right? When it comes to uh, the work world. So uh, it was a really fun, in fact, it started out as sort of a blog post for the Inclusion Solution and sort of evolved into the chapter for the book, which I'm just so honored to, to lend voice to. Yes, that was a late entry, actually. Um, we had most of the book together, right, Mary Frances? Right, exactly. A, a, a late but extremely important and critical um, entry. I think that you will really get a lot from Rochelle's chapter because as we have promised for this book, um, it, is the, it is practical the recommendations are very practical. But you have to practice them, as Caitlin Elaine says. <laughs> That's right. Oh my gosh. So yeah. speaking of, what do you want people or readers to walk away with after reading your chapters? Scott, we'll start with you. Yeah, I think, um, I, I mean, I think the word practical is, is exactly the right one. I, I want people to understand um, 
what psychological safety is and, and the importance of it, um, but more fundamentally, what you can do to create psychological safety and, and, and build trust. Um, and also, I think, too, that psychological safety, it doesn't happen through words. It doesn't come through, you know, spending time on a mission statement or values. It really comes through actions and it comes through the, the examples that leaders, the leaders set. Um, and so, yeah, practical ways to actually, actually do that as well as the, the foundational understanding of what it means. Great. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Caitlin? I can jump in. Yes. Um, for me, I think some people are going to read my chapter and say, well, I already knew what microaggressions were, or um, I already knew the implications of silence. I definitely want my chapter to serve as that reflection and reminder. Um, as soon as you read it, you want to grab a notepad and again, start reflecting on, hmm, when was a time that I did experience something and I didn't speak up? How did that kind of affect the scenario? What was the outcome? Um, again, if I come across this, what would I do um, for next time? And then you're also going to have some people that read the chapter and are like, oh yeah, I didn't know what microaggressions are. I didn't have a name for that. I didn't know that I had been a bystander, perpetrator, or receiver of the things described in this chapter. And the same thing, want to grab a notepad and paper, reflect on well, how have I been affected by scenarios such as this? And what am I going to do to make changes in the future? Thank you, Rochelle. Yeah, I think for me, it's just a, it's a gentle invitation to say the hard thing. Reflect on the thing you've been meaning to say and needing to do and do it, right? This is, we call it the work because it's work. And I think the book really serves as a workbook, right? So as Caitlin Lane was saying, like, get out your pen, get out your notepad, whatever it is, Google Doc, however you can get your thoughts um, out into, uh, just out of your head and, and start to use it, so some of these tools maybe in low stakes situations. And so I was really reflecting on what is the main takeaway is like, try this with yourself first. I really think it starts with self-compassion. It really starts with like non-judgment around how you're showing up and wanting to try this. Um, and then just choose one framework from my chapter that resonates for you, right? Some may not at all. Some may not feel natural to your own conversation style. So then don't do that, right? Just uh, choose one that might work and and try it on and actually and actually do it. This is great. So many options, so many possibility models in this book. People got to go out and get it. <laughs> um, well, after, given that, it sounds like, you know, this work can be very fatiguing. So Mary Frances and I wanted to make sure that we asked everyone, you know, how do you fill your, fill your cup? How do you keep this work sustainable for you? Scott, you got any tips? Um, I mean, I guess my, I, I guess my, 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 my tip, my, my advice to others would be to, to, to really through trial and error, sometimes just figure out what works for you, right? I, I think um, I, I don't know, at least from my experience, that there's one thing that I could recommend to other people. Um, I would say for me, uh, especially through the wackiness of the last few years, um, it, it for me that's it's it's been a matter of routine. Um, you know, this this work can often make me feel 
untethered, um, sort of discombobulated and, and, and routine, like walking my dog in the morning, setting aside time to, to, to listen to music or to, to read or just to zone out and watch TV, but it like, you know, Jeopardy at seven o'clock, like it's a routine. Um, and that, and, and that, that routine is really what it is, regardless of, of what it is. It's the routine that really helps, helps ground me and keep me sane sometimes. <laughs> Thank you. Caitlin, you got any advice? <laughs> yeah, for me, I think it's what Rochelle already said. I fill my cup by getting thoughts out of my head. Um, and I really do, and shameless plug for everything else we've said today, I just enjoy journaling. Um, I enjoy writing. I enjoy similarly the organization of planning. Um, that's the way where some people might look at me and be like, wow, like that's really organized or that's a little over the top, don't you think? Are you overthinking a little? And I'm like, this is the way that I fill my cup by being able to write it all out write it all down to be able to uh, think about, again, how things make me feel and how I react to things throughout the day. And then I'm able to sleep better because I have dumped it out um, and it's not just swarming in my head and keeping me distracted or kind of bogging me down with emotions because I'm a very emotion-filled person. Um, so the only way to really organize those emotions is to either talk about them, share them, write them down, or Honestly, again, like yell them out, whatever I need to do in the moment based on the emotion. Um, but that's how I just personally like to make myself feel good and put myself first, no matter, again, whether it's a scream or a cry, that's how I'm able to release everything that's inside of me. Great, love it. Thanks for sharing. And Rochelle, we'll end with you. <laughs> Great, yeah, I think as I was reflecting on this, it's easy to become disembodied in this work. In other words, I tend to live in my head. I over-identify with like the cognitive functioning and, and I forget the wisdom of my body, my breath, my nervous system. So um, I get out in nature, I walk, I watch a lot of stand-up comedy. Like laughter nice. is so important. And I spent all of my twenties taking myself so seriously <laughs> as like an angsty activist and I'm healing from that. I'm healing. And so laughter matters to me. So shout out to Trevor Noah's most recent stand-up on Netflix. Mm, it's phenomenal. Really be picky about your comedy. Punching down is not cool. It's not cool. So um, I, I love comedy that has, yeah, a wide perspective the way Trevor Noah does. Um, and then something I've written lately, I write mantras on anything I can find. It's like a little piece of cardboard. But I just always come back to mantras. And one thing I wrote recently is that I have nothing to hide. I have nothing to protect. I have nothing to prove. I have nothing to defend. Today, I choose to be free from others' expectations of me. I'm free to be whoever I want to be. So I hope that's helpful for others, too. Wow. Yes, that is a great way to end. Fantastic way to end. So we would like to just really thank you um, for this wonderful conversation. Um, I know that it was helpful for me. I learned some things about mm -hmm. you all that I didn't know. And so that's always um, wonderful. And I'm sure that our listeners um, have gained quite a bit from uh, you all as well. And so Gabby, is it time to close? It is time to close. We wish right. to thank the listeners, thank our guests. And we right. go for it, Mary Frances. All right. So until next time, we want you to reimagine justice at work. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. Thank you.